0: In your words, what does the word intentional mean for you?
1: Intentional, I guess to use other uh, synonyms, sort of purposeful, thoughtful, strategic, kind of a beginning and an middle and an end in mind, uh, sort of a vision of what the future could be.
0: Welcome to Intentional Growth, a show that teaches you as a business owner and entrepreneur to view and run your company like a financial asset, which will allow you to enjoy work, create wealth, and make an impact. This mindset will help you focus on building a more valuable business and give you the choices to grow, acquire, reinvest, or exit and live the life you plan for, all with intention. And now here's your host, Ryan Tansom welcome back we are continuing the mini series of through the eyes of a business buyer where we're talking about and talking to different types of business buyers how they perceive value valuations deal structures the company and what their plans are for it so you can better understand how to line that up with your first principle of your intent of the intentional growth principles of your drivers like what do you want from the business and why your second target your second principle your financial targets what valuation do you need? Net proceeds, and then how to take those two principles and use them as a lens to analyze all the exit options so you can grow value to create the choices that you want long term that you think is best for you. And I'm very excited for today's episode because Paul Moffitt is back on the show and he works at a company called Encore One, which is a group inside of a family office, which he's gonna completely describe in a little in a couple minutes. And I like this episode along with the last two because These are different flavors of ways that The different business buyers are buying a company that they want the return, but they have a completely different structure. And I hear a lot of people talking about family offices, essentially extremely wealthy individuals that manage their portfolio. Think about the pie chart with all the colorful different pieces of the pie. And one of their slices of the pie is direct investments into a privately held company. And Paul is one of the employees to help facilitate that. So he's helping find deals, generate the offers, looking at due diligence, essentially really driving forward that strategy for that family office. And I'm very excited to help you understand what is the purpose of these family offices? Why are they going and doing this? And what questions should you ask? And how does that compare to the last two episodes on this uh, podcast of different versions of private equity firms or traditional private equity firms? So this is again, inside of the principle number three of intentional growth principles, and if you want to dive further into this material, please check out the Intentional Growth Bootcamp. It's on the 2nd and 3rd of November at Bethel University, Minnesota. The first ticket is 5000 bucks. The second ticket is half off. We're getting limited on the amount of spots available. But again, even if you don't have a, a room in for this bootcamp, we're building our waiting list. So that way, the more people we can get on the waiting list, we'll just pop one up as soon as it works for everybody else. Again, go check it out, the Intentional Growth Bootcamp at arcona.io. We got the trailer, we got the curriculum, we got everything you can hopefully uh, dive into to make it, uh, make a decision of if it's right for you or not. Otherwise, feel free to reach out to myself and my team. Again, thanks everybody for tuning in. And without further ado, here's my interview with Paul Moffitt. You ever found yourself in your office after an executive meeting and you're sitting there going, I have huge decisions to make, whether it's hiring that next key employee, buying that next piece of machinery, buying a building, launching a location or product or whatever it might be, and you're sitting there going, is this the right decision? And then you think back about the original vision you had when you started the business or the vision you have right now that you know is possible in the marketplace and you sit there and go, how do you know and how do I know that what I'm doing is the right thing when realistically you have the option just take all the money home and solve for annual cash flow and essentially just have a job that's kicking out a lot of cash the reason that you would do all those things is because you want to grow a company that's worth a bunch of money that gives you the freedom of choices to do what you want long term whether that's take a back seat and be a passive investor whether that's sell part of it or some of it essentially just have as many choices as you want but what we find is that most times entrepreneurs and business owners are solving for annual cash flow because they don't know how to measure and monitor the value of the business and where they are today and how, what they're investing in doing is growing a more valuable business and how to measure that into the future. And I had experienced the exact same thing. I ran a family business that was doing 20 million in revenue, hundred and some employees. And my dad and I had this constant conversation back and forth about what we should be doing and where we should be going, but we never really knew knew whether what we were spending our time and money on was making us progress towards that eventual goal of having a valuation that we wanted that gave us the choices so then you have to sit there and go maybe i should just take the money home or i should just hope and pray That is exactly why we created this financial assessment because if you organize your financials in a certain way, and we have this financial foundation with four components, you take this assessment, it's 22 questions, you don't need your financials, and at the end result of it, there's a results page where Pat, my partner, and I walk through five videos to show you a case study of what good looks like and how to actually project out the future value of the company and how you can make The decision's clear today to say, if I do these things, what's the impact on cash flow today, my ability to fund my growth, take the distributions, pay for taxes, all while staying in line, progressing towards the valuation that I want. So go take the assessment below, and I hope you enjoy. Paul, how are you, man?
1: I'm doing well. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me today.
0: Yeah, I'm super pumped, man. I was thinking about like what I actually was thinking about where I was when I interviewed you last, uh, because it was like three, four years ago, I think, right before the our world got flipped on its head. And I uh, was super excited as I was thinking about this mini miniseries. I'm like, you know, you know, a lot of, you know, we covered family offices in the past and they, when you and I were chatting, like, you know, how you were different compared to different options. And I'm like, this is so timely because I think there's been a lot of family office activity just in general in the marketplace. And uh, you were so pleasant to just, talk to you because you just laid it all out there, man. So we're going to we're gonna go back and we're going to do some of that again. And I'm very excited. But for the, the people who have not heard that episode, why don't you give a little bit of your background, how you got to where you're at, and then we'll um, talk about then the family office that you're in and kind of your structure and talk about how it's different than some of the other things that are out there.
1: Sure. My background is in uh, commercial banking. So I started my career in, uh, in Chicago in commercial banking. And Kind of had a uh, progressive banking career and moving up the ranks, and life was good. And uh, things got turned upside down a little bit in the two thousand eight, two thousand nine timeframe. And I uh, was was part of uh, many bank, I guess, M A transactions. And uh, throughout the years, um, you know, kind of enjoyed those different experiences and but always working with middle market businesses and, and business owners and their unique situations and different you know, economic cycles. And then uh, personally, uh, my wife being from St. Paul, there was a, a, a time that it made sense to move to the Twin Cities, so we're here now. I did a little more banking locally, but just kind of by uh, serendipity and happenstance, was connected to this really interesting group, Encore One, uh, a number of years ago and joined about five years ago, really in an effort to kind of reinvigorate the marketing effort of what we were doing. Encore One itself is is a 25-year-old organization that is really a family-owned investment holding company. Maybe one thing that's changed since we last talked. I might have referred to it as a family office, and and I'm refining. I think, and I think it's helpful for the audience as well to maybe understand the distinction. So now I call it a family-owned investment holding group, 25 years old, which makes it, I think, very unique. Mm-hmm. There is uh, the concept of the family office. I think is kind of in the zeitgeist more frequently now these days, and maybe it had been in the past, but. Uh, I'd like to thank our our founder and patriarch, Jerry Roundhorse. You know, he had the idea a long time ago in the late 90s. And his idea uh, was really to keep, and his wish and his desire to create a legacy was to keep the ownership of his original business, which is Opus. Opus, now known as Opus Group. So it's a series of kind of family-owned construction companies. Uh, He wanted to keep Opus in the family for generations to come. And kind of a unique request. The way he did that is... Uh, the shares of the construction company were kind of contributed to two family trusts, two generation skipping trusts, for the benefit of you know future generations of Roundhorse mm-hmm. family members. So the family are uh, really you know beneficiaries of a family trust, but recognizing long term you know real estate and construction and, and real estate development were cyclical and risky he thought it made a lot of sense to diversify the family wealth away from just construction. He set up Encore One as a sister company. um, And our goal and mandate was to make direct investments in middle market operating companies. So the types of companies
0: I was. Was that, was that sister company separate out of those trusts? So the, and and honestly, this is just super fascinating, I think for the listeners too, because I think, you know, as the, you know, wealthier families have kind of gotten a little bit more publicity over the last handful of years, like, what's the purpose? And so you need. It, it, it was very helpful of like understanding the businesses and stuff like that, but kind of set up like, like I don't know if there's a, like a landscape because they got their hands in a lot of different things. I don't know if it's all within these trusts or if it's the different entities in general that they just, that, that are controlled or how does that work?
1: Yeah, I guess largely within the trust. So they're sister companies, um, they're affiliates, they're not subsidiaries or parents. They're not owned. They don't own each other. Only mm-hmm. the trust owns. Okay the different businesses, the different businesses are very intentionally run separately, not to mention they're all in separate, you know, industries with their own needs and challenges and different, you know, unique mm-hmm. functional business areas, that, that sort of thing. So Encore One was really just set up to diversify the family wealth away from just construction, real estate development. But also it created this really interesting vehicle where, you know, Encore One could, by companies from founders, where the founder had a strong desire, like Jerry, to create a legacy, but perhaps didn't have, you know, children or family members in the business or interested in taking it over. Yet they had a strong desire to kind of see the business, you know, grow and last long into the future. Mm -hmm. So we're in a very unique, you know, legal and corporate structure that allows for that really long term growth and ownership and you know, the family trust is the source of capital for our investment. So we don't have to take outside capital necessarily mm-hmm. from from third parties. Um, we don't have outside investors that we raise capital from. So there's nobody to necessarily, you know, return an investment to or,
0: or tell you uh, what to do.
1: <laughs> or, or right, exactly. So we have a pretty clear agenda and purpose once we buy a business and that's kind of to support their long term growth. And what, you know, then I get asked the question, you know, like what do you get out of it? Like how do you get your return? And it's really about capital appreciation and diversification. So, kind of safety and security of that family estate, and you know, of course, there's excess cash flow in these businesses potentially if they're you know strong companies and run really well. But you know, generally that's just kind of reserved for for taxes and you know, so, from a return standpoint, if there's a better investment opportunity that helps grow a business, that's, you know, more useful to kind of the overall estate rather than, mm-hmm. you know, taking out large distributions that are sort of unnecessary and, and kind of mortgage the future for some sort of, you know, short-term return today. So it's a really I wanna, unique, I wanna, uh, legal I wanna, structure.
0: That's okay. Sorry to interrupt, but I wanted to pull that thread of like how you're talking about distributions, how the capital, capital appreciates inside of that. But before we get to that, I want to kind of back up a sec and cause like when I, when I'm always describing family offices or family holding companies, you know, with given your, your, how the, the structure, I want to make sure it's accurate, but like there's always a choice of uh, a wealthy family to either go down your route or go give money to private equity. Right. And so, I don't know if you've got any insights on like why they decided to go the route that you are. Maybe you can kind of describe those two because I end up doing that a lot, Paul. Where I'm like, okay, like so. When they say family offices, in, in kind of in our private equity section of our training, but it's like, well, there's a lot of different flavors of that of how yeah. you know a wealthy family can deploy their capital. So I don't. Does that, does the question make sense on how to kind of compare the two.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I can speak to our group, and of course, every group is different you know, unique structures and setup and, and uh, you know, different sort of, you know, growth and asset protection strategies. So and I guess the reason I call, my, call Encore One, uh, not myself, but Encore One, a family holding company, is because we're really one asset class within a diversified portfolio within a family office. So mm-hmm. we do have, um, you know, colleagues here who are in a different group, and they are doing what you're describing. They're more you know, they're investing in managers. So fund managers are pro- mm-hmm. private equity funds. We're doing our thing, which is what I would call direct investing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's, you know, another group that is doing, you know, real estate investing in the form of a, a, a private equity fund themselves, but that's a different, different model. So.
0: And, and one, and, and just to be clear, our
1: fourth, fourth group rather that's kind of a, a captive tax consulting group. So.
0: And don't you have um, a bank too within the organization? think like a commercial I bank. So
1: that would be affiliated in the encore one, uh, group. So a bank okay. just being another operating company. So the bank doesn't fund any of our family office activities. It's really run independently. It's got its own, you know, customers and CEO mm-hmm. and, and CFO. And that's, you know, again, run, run sort of separately. So it's really the, the public market investing, the direct investing of encore one, and then there's a real estate investment group. So in some family offices like all those you know asset classes and and the allocation of capital to those different uh, asset classes might be run by one individual but in our case there's sort of three different groups with three different sets of you know professional managers doing mm-hmm. something different so all all different uh, skill sets but Super yeah helpful, and then it's it's yeah. really a matter of kind of resources and asset allocation so Yeah, if I, you know, I guess if I were a wealthy person myself, um, you know, I would earmark some for the public markets or for Mm -hmm. other private equity funds, as you're saying, that's great exposure. Those are professional managers with, you know, great, you know, know, return metrics, Mm -hmm. I'm sure that they're able to generate, but I'm entrepreneurial, so I might have another sliver of my, you know, asset allocation directed towards what you're describing, Mm -hmm. either which I don't want to call private equity. I would call it direct investing. And maybe yep. they're direct investing in, you know, mature companies because that's the line of business they came out of. Maybe they're really passionate about, you know, early stage venture investing and helping other entrepreneurs get off the ground. That's really risky. You know, I wouldn't allocate a lot to that maybe, but maybe it's it's an area mm-hmm. I really know really well and am passionate about. And maybe there's, you know, there's a, a uh, tax and a, a benefit to also investing in you know real estate or utilities or you know other other you know industries that are on different mm-hmm, cycles mm-hmm. than the rest of my portfolio, for example. So,
0: Paul, that's you know, awesome, it doesn't man. all have
1: to be one thing or another.
0: It's it's awesome because that that like, in a different in different words, that's kind of what I've always described to people. I'm like you know, one person has got like the pie chart of the colorful different asset classes of different expectations of the returns, and you just like they're just diving up bigger big slices because the pie is so big right and so you're in that direct investing so that's so helpful man with the context and that kind of going into to pulling to continue pulling that thread is when you were saying that because of the, the with the rest of the background of the family that has cash flow dividends you know a, a appreciation of different asset classes the expectation of your piece of the pie when you were talking about like how you know what's the purpose You know, and like how, so how does that work? And you were saying like, so the, how did you word it where like, you don't, you're not taking the dividends out necessarily because of the capital appreciation, because that's lent, that's all giving insight to the why they're doing that. So we want to kind of continue or re-explain that, like that philosophy that you guys have there.
1: Yeah, I guess, you know, you can think about it different ways, like return on equity versus an IRR would be a, maybe a traditional private equity, uh, you know, sort of, sort of benchmark, but I guess you can you can model anything, you know, that doesn't have to be like a realized IRR, but that could be like an expectation or, a you know, a parameter upon which to make a, a investment decision. You know, is this a good investment or not? If it were, a you know, if it's capitalized like a traditional leverage buyout or what a private equity fund would do traditionally, you know, is this a good investment opportunity at this, you know, purchase price with this capital structure, with this growth profile and exit expectations. But it's really just a tool in order to make a, you know, a, an investment decision, because I guess overall, the trust does have opportunity cost. If it's not a good investment, they might as well just stick it in the, you
0: mm-hmm. know, the
1: public market investing group, you know, for, mm-hmm. for example. So, but the reality is, you know, you've made a good investment decision, You're not, you you. I I keep saying you, but we might decide Mm -hmm. not to actually, you know, realize that investment and just let it, you know, grow and and appreciate. And, you know, hopefully that's possible because of, you know, there's a great management team and interesting industry dynamics and there's, you know, organic growth and consolidation opportunities. And as long as, you know, a business is growing and profitable, like just let it keep going. We talked about a little bit before we actually got on camera here, you know, if you think about it in a different way, we've owned a business and we've got one, you know, for for example in, in mind, I'll say, but you know, it's grown really well. We've owned it for twenty years and it's you know created a lot of value on paper. And there could be a fantastic exit opportunity. And you know, most most of us mere mortals will say, Well, just take the money out and, you know, <laughs> enjoy mortals. That's just not our mandate. You know, that there's a, we're professional managers. There's a trust. The trust has like certain goals and expectations. And again, it's designed to last forever. And so that's a much more unique than, you know, you or I, who, you know, only have a couple more years left on the planet to maybe enjoy the, the results of that growth and value. So it's just a, it's just a different, calculus. And if you were to have that, you know, big exit and, you know, it's great, but, you know, we're, we're really working for the benefit of future generations. Then of, you have to go
0: figure out how what so to put family them.
1: members. So then you just have to take that money that was generating this fantastic return anyway, return on equity and go invest it somewhere else and chase a, a bigger, potentially more risky deal than the one you already have and, and is growing nicely. So, um, you know, another way to think about it is if you're going to own something for a hundred years, like what's the present value of all that cash flow? Just the multiple that you could get paid today probably isn't big enough to you know make that make that equation work to make the make the exit more valuable than owning it for you know decades longer in the future. So
0: it's awesome, Paul. It's, I mean, uh,
1: it's a unique position to be in. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a family member. I'm an employee and, and manager, I guess, but but that's the mindset that we have, I guess, when we're making, mm-hmm. you know, creating relationships, hopefully building trust with business owners, and you know, making investment decisions that are, you know, good for the business, the employees, the remaining management team, as well as as well as our group.
0: Uh, dude, awesome, awesome context, man. Because like, I like what I've been trying to do with these episodes and is give all of the context behind the scenes, so when you know business owners are sitting there having conversations, they know like essentially how to follow the money, where are the decisions getting made from? You don't have a three to five year term, you know, term that you have to, you know, I don't know how, how Brent be sure I it, but rip flip and whatever the heck it was, you know? And and again, it's not, not to knock the traditional private equity market. It's just, it's just a different mandate, like you said, but what that does is
1: it's big, it's profitable and it exists for a reason. mm -hmm. Uh, You know, there there's terrific outcomes, you know, for, potentially for, for business owners and, uh, and then those private equity funds, the managers, as well as the investors that it, it's, it's a uh, successful and growing market, you know, for a reason that model works, maybe not 100% of the time, but that's why they also get fantastic returns because the ones that do work, work really well. Mm-hmm.
0: But it, absolutely. But like when I, again, thinking about from the seller's perspective, what's important to them, right. And how to determine based on what's important to them their legacy their role the employees the community and then the deal structure and the price like we're trying to make that like in, in our training its principles one and two is a lens to say okay if paul has got an offer in front of me what is it what's the purpose of the deal what's the structure going to look like what are you going to do with all that stuff and that's some of the stuff i want to kind of uh, unpack with you just just from your perspective right just to help them understand that you're one family office with one direct investing there could be a lot more with different mandates but at least they understand And like, and just from a place to start too, is like your goal is not to just sell it in four years because then again, you'd have to figure out what to do with the rest of the money and go back and buy another company to your point, which then leads me to think of how you're mandating. And I don't know the deal structure, we can get into that, but like, you know, reinvestment instead of having it so levered that they can't reinvest, right? And so like, that's where I'm trying to, how we can go. So like, when you think about, let's maybe start with, what is the like when it's a great fit for you guys? So think about maybe one of your current portfolio companies or someone that you've talked to, and he's like, "This is a perfect fit from like what they want and the deal structure." Like, what would be like kind of the ideal person where you're like, "Okay, this there's a lot here."
1: Yeah, I think. Well, first, it would let's say for a platform company, so it would be in a new industry maybe that we're not already in. So it would be a, a platform in that respect, and then. It's it's got a certain size, you know, that uh, makes sense for us and our, our pocketbook, you know, in terms of the size of the equity check that we're looking to write in order to be efficient. And these deals take months. So, you know, we can really only do one or two really good deals a year or two mm-hmm. because we do have a kind of small sort of closely managed group as well. You know, we're not set up like private equity for a lot of velocity and to do a lot of deals. We're looking mm-hmm. for one or two really, really good ones. So in terms of size and as a reflection of our pocketbook, you know, it could be, you know, a four to $10 million EBITDA Mm -hmm. company in the traditional sort of industrial business services, manufacturing, distribution, that kind of stuff. You know, we don't have experience with and stay away from a lot of, you know, heavy tech, not tech enabled, but just technology Mm -hmm. companies, you know, retail, consumer products, really dynamic, dynamic kind of cyclical industries. Anyway, but that said, you kind of have a picture of the sort of mature, forty-year-old, mm-hmm. good,
0: you know, plastic injection plastic molding, paper. steel fabrication.
1: <laughs> it, right? Yep, yep. Some of those as as examples for sure. So, um, and then beyond that, number two is, you know, this is not an original thought, but a strong management team. So, you know, usually are a good audience for or a receptive audience, I guess, to our message and approach is an aging founder who's nearing retirement, who's in their 60s or 70s or even older sometimes, who um, has got a great business, has trained up and coached up and has a great you know bench and strong management team that's really doing the day to day. And then that owner, uh, usually 100 percent owner, but doesn't have to be, um, just kind of has a really strong affinity for the team and, you know, and, and keeping it intact and kind of providing them long term sort of employment prospects, but even, you know, professional growth opportunities as well, that they're just not able to provide. And maybe they're at the end of their sort of risk tolerance rope. They just mm-hmm. don't want to take new risks. They don't want to make another acquisition, start a new product line, enter a new market. Yet the team's like chomping at the bit <laughs> with, with all these things they, they yeah. could be doing. So anyway, that's kind of a good signal that it's time to move on. But that owner seller has a, you know, maybe a really strong patriarchal Attitude towards the business and wants to see it taken care of, whatever Mm -hmm. that means. Mm -hmm. That said, they want a fair full value for their business. And I (laughs) I get that. Um, You know, at, at the end of the day, I think our approach is nice. Maybe it's worth a little bit of money, but it's not worth, you know, multiple turns of EBITDA when you start talking about $5 million in EBITDA. Is it worth $5 million less? Maybe not. Maybe it's maybe I'll take encore one's offer for, you know, 2 million less, you know, maybe it's 28 versus 30, you know, that, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. But, but um, you know, there has to be a high level of trust, a lot of comfort with our group. And then again, the, the future opportunities that, you know, the money's got to be right. And then the future opportunities, I think for those mm-hmm. employees. So it's not for everybody, you know, if it was a high fast growing software company that was only a couple of years old, had a lot of outside investors. I mean, that business, Needs to go to the highest bidder. Needs to go to auction. You know that that sort of thing for sure. That makes a lot of sense. But if it's your business, so to speak, the the seller owner, they can kind of make those sort of non financial decisions about where you know their uh, comfort lies with the type of Mm. you know buyer that they would potentially be be wanting to work with. So. Uh, you know so I it's see, see. you know size management, and then I guess disposition of the owner. Are they receptive mm-hmm. to our approach? Is it something they care about? You know, it's not for everybody. It can seem kind of silly and Pollyannish for some, and you know, talk about legacy might really not mean anything um, for some. But you know, for others, and you know, some of our outstate communities, that can be really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's you know, that's my job, I guess, to find those to find to find that audience. And yep. usually it's through, you know, the trusted referral network.
0: Well, and I think it's a, uh, you know, I appreciate you you being humble about your guys' approach, but I think that there's a bit for just is my own perspective, Paul, like the, the hundreds of people have been through our training. I mean, the, the, the general majority are founder partnership led, you know, privately held businesses and they do care for, for the most part, I would say it's an abnormality and an outlier for someone that's like, I don't give a shit about any of my people or my vendors or any of this stuff. I want to sell this at max purchase price and gut the thing. I mean, generally that it's they're kind of forced into a situation like that. So like, I think yeah. what's an interesting note about what you said though, and this kind of maybe leads into the deal structures that, you know, Sonny Vanderbeck was on the show. He's got a, a long-term holding uh, kind of conscious capitalism private equity firm too. And he's like, you can legitimately maximize purchase price by someone levering this thing up with a bunch of debt. But like, there are huge implications. Even if you're not Mister Woo Woo, like culture stuff, like there are implications of having zero wiggle room between taxes and debt payment to like fund your growth, right? I mean, so like, there's a law of diminishing returns. I think at some point, if people understand that, so like, the twenty-eight to thirty million dollar, you know, choice. I, my question would be: I would challenge the listeners. Like, is that even a choice, right? Is that if, if depending on that max purchase price offer, like what are the implications of the deal structure and trying to run a business like that after that, if it's even possible?
1: Yeah, no, that's a good point. So, you know, as I said, you know, we're modeling, I guess uh, our our potential investments and, and making decisions based on a, I'll just call it a traditional private equity model or LBO model, but there are ways to kind of juice those returns potentially. So you can offer that entrepreneur, you know, more money. So the 30 million, you know, for their business, um, but because of the short time frame you have to run it and, and, and flip it, as you say, or, you know, sell it or exit the investment, you know, there's, there, you can, you know, an investor could over lever it, you know, potentially. And, you know, sometimes I guess they would never intentionally do it to, you know, to, to, to the detriment of the business. And there's, you know, there's pretty thoughtful ways, I guess, to kind of structure those, those, that, that debt, but you know, we would go to traditional commercial banking sources. We're not going to, like, you know, leverage, you know, credit funds or anything like that. Um, and those funds exist because they're looking for an exit, too. They're not necessarily mm-hmm. looking to see the 30th year of the amortization. But, <laughs> um, you, know, but and that, you know, that debt, I guess, comes at a cost, you know, as well, which puts more pressure on, you know, the business to grow and grow quickly. How you does know, in a lot impact, of cases, there's is- rollover equity involved in mm-hmm, that. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you can make the argument well, you know, you've sold most of your business, but now you're the minority owner of a highly levered business that has this, you know, really uh, ambitious growth expectations over the next couple of years. And, and I don't want to sound too biased from the position that I'm sitting in. I mean, obviously, the parties wouldn't get involved in that deal and that structure unless, you know, there was a real strategic plan to grow the business. But It does put, you know, new pressure on the company and the managers, I guess, generally to sort of perform and and reach those goals and and metrics in order to realize the second bite of the apple and those kind of exciting things. Um, You know, in our structure, I guess it would be maybe more conservatively levered, which isn't bad because we're putting in more equity, which we can afford to do because Mm -hmm. we're owning it longer. Mm -hmm. So there Mm -hmm. isn't the same pressure. We want a good return on our equity as well, so there is growth and, and profit. You guys usually put like
0: like a rule rule of thumb is it like a couple turns of EBITDA of debt or something like that? That's super reasonable. Yeah, I think you know for some
1: companies if it's slower growth and more capital intensive, you know it could be you know one and a half to two times of leverage if it's you know strong and and growing really well and there's good free cash flow, it could be you know two and a half to three turns of you know senior mm-hmm. debt financing. We'd use our own sources for you know what we call mezzanine or subordinated debt but Mm -hmm. it still comes from the the trust in most cases and then the balance would be funded uh with equity so you know depending on the purchase price and the situation you know we generally you know appear to be i think an attractive uh debtor i guess to you know banks and that you know we're putting in more capital Mm -hmm. than, than what they're contributing necessarily and hopefully, again, that's a comfortable place for the management team to then operate and hopefully grow the business mm-hmm, so that, mm-hmm. you that know, we can we can afford to kind of continually reinvest and, and grow the company. So which, that, that know, that's, that just, right that's is... just our
0: approach. I know, but it, it's which is, which is why you're on the show, because I wanted to hear your approach, because the whole point is to compare it around norms or conversations. You know, people are getting their doors knocked on all the time. And we both know that there's like, what, two, one and a half, two trillion dollars of committed capital already that's got to be spent. So like. These, these people are getting their their uh, you know phones ringing a lot. And so going back to kind of like, you know, again, so just using your example and your guys' structure as something to – as relativity. Like, okay, how does that compare to other things? And going back to Ken, like that was very helpful in the deal structure. But let's say it was two offers, like the $28 million. Let's say it was thirty five, But the $7 million is going to come in that rolled equity or – a promissory note and it's fully levered and you've got three years compared to getting it all up front or i don't know how, how you guys do it that's what i'm trying to get at is like what are the anticipated like new mandates after the closing right because like that could dramatically depend or dr- dramatically change what someone's desire is of to pick you versus someone else and this is again the point of the show is that all offers are not equal, right? You have two offers, it's enterprise value, but when and how you get your money is completely different. <laughs> so like people need to be aware of that.
1: Sure. Yeah, no, I mean, that's 7 million could be a risk. It depends who the shareholders were, you know, is it a 75 year old with health issues who's got to roll some equity and isn't really even involved, doesn't have his hand on the wheel or her wheel driving the business or is it a couple of remaining shareholders who, you know, are maybe longtime employees. They're in the, they're in their fifties. It's a really exciting opportunity for Mm -hmm. them, actually, you know, that Mm -hmm. can make a lot of sense. And that might even be something in that situation that we would, you know, consider as well as other, you know, incentive comp programs that are hopefully exciting and align our interests with, with management and their goals and their wealth creation, you know, opportunities and, and goals as well. So, it it all depends but yeah if you're you know aging you're not involved in the company anyway to have to roll about you know and you're the 100% seller mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. owner seller you know that that might be disingenuous i think if you're a 45 year old seller and and uh you want to roll some equity and you sell the passion to like grow and lead the business under this new ownership you just need a little bit of more growth equity and support to to grow the business like that could be really exciting and i i totally get that so you're going to have a new boss and somebody to answer to. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to be in your your back pocket every Friday afternoon. But, you know, it's a little bit of what you signed up for and that could be an exciting opportunity. And, you know, nothing's without, you know, cost and risk, you know, for sure. Like, uh, you know, they say in any kind of investment perspective, you know, we may not ultimately be successful in achieving our goals, but, you um, you know, hence the definition of risk versus versus return. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, um, you know, those are, those are, you know, meaningful structures for sure. And we do some of that, I guess, where, you know, the situation is sort of appropriate, you know, there's other financing structures kind of depend, maybe it's a really lumpy cyclical business and it requires a more friendly debt financing package and, some seller financing, you know, that might be warranted in some cases. And that can be really attractive if, if maybe the seller is like sticking on in the management role, again, has their hand on the wheel and and uh, they're able to earn some additional interest that they couldn't otherwise, you know, get in the open market, that that sort of thing. So those could be good opportunities. So every, every situation is unique. I guess our approach, uh, and it's a reflection of our long-term ownership, is that we could be flexible and we recognize there's multiple uh, stakeholders, if not just shareholders that, you know, might have an interest in this transaction or it being successful or in the newly formed entity. And, um, they're really important to the deal or the legacy of the company or the culture or the continuity. Um, you know, we can find something for them too. And I think we can afford mm-hmm. to be, you know, thoughtful, strategic, and because we're, you know, long-term, and so, and I should say, the royal. We certainly there's other long-term investors out there that don't have a traditional fund to answer to. Uh, so it's not just Encore One. It could be, you know, family offices generally, uh, other independent sponsor type search funds, mm-hmm. just groups with longer-term horizons for sure.
0: So then, what if um, what is your guys's approach towards that management team? As far as like, it's maybe a comment of a two-part approach or two-part question, Paul. I don't know, however make sure that i want to make sure that the question makes sense is like how you guys like when you're assessing the management team and the strategic plan is probably both of like okay where's the company going what's the potential and who's you know driving that ship how do you guys assess that assess both the management team and the strategic plan and then how does that how do you guys interact with the strategic plan and the management team and the operations after closing
1: yeah, so I, well, I guess after closing, you know, we certainly take an active position on a board. So, you know, it's myself, my uh, colleague here, at Craig, who's 20-year president and CEO of Encore One. He's got uh, more experience than I do, but certainly all the kind of tribal knowledge, how we do things, informal policies, that sort of thing, and, and real Bonafide M&A experience um, uh, as well, having been an investment banker in a, a past life. So we're on the board, you know, we're, you know, supportive board members, I guess not like an operational board member. You know, we're I made a note that to mention, you know, we're investing in different industries intentionally, so we can't be experts in all these you know areas of business but, you know, have got kind of broad experience to bring to the table and to provide a sounding board to the remaining management team and to support their vision for for growth. Um, you know, annually they're presenting their budget, their strategy for the year. We're asking questions. We're thinking about, you know, mitigating risk both for the business and I guess the, the, the family ownership group as well, but not really, you know, mandating, I guess, the direction of the business. Um when they supporting, you know, inorganic growth opportunities, both looking for and and, and executing and negotiating on, you know, you know, M&A growth opportunities, we think we're a great uh, partner in that negotiation discussion with the perspective add on you know, or bolt on or follow. I can on, only whatever. imagine
0: having a big chunk of money in the resources. Uh, as, <laughs> if I was one yeah. of the platform companies wanting to acquire, acquire some, I'd be like, well, here's my friend, Paul, who has got a, a, warf- or a ch- uh, war chest. <laughs>
1: right. So we represent the uh, friendly, deep-pocketed investor, the CEO we're partnered with, so to speak. You know, they can speak to, you know, for this uh, friendly competitor, they might be, you know, inquiring to buy can say, no, it's been a great experience. Encore One uh, or others are, you know, terrific uh, partners and investors. They've done what they said they were going to do, that sort of thing. So I think both for the platform management company, as well as at like perspective add-on, uh, having Encore One, as you said, is kind of the, the deep pocketed investor uh, and this really friendly long-term approach, you know, is, is a much softer landing for a lot of not only the business owner seller, but like the remaining management team and the employees as Mm -hmm. well, just to have sort of, you know, long-term visibility into what their job prospects are. And that's Mm -hmm. often the most important thing to to many people. Um, but not only that, but that there's growth opportunity and this group's going to support us, you know, Mm -hmm. on the one hand, but on the other hand, you know, stay out of the way, so to speak, not setting up shop, you know, opening up an office, putting in our own, you know, operating partner expert to uh, kind of monitor, I guess, the business and the month to month process, you know, progress towards, you know, reaching some sort of goal in support of a, you know, future. You're not, so you're not, uh,
0: you guys are there's just, two sides
1: of that. It's yeah. not, we don't, we don't uh, run and open greenfield locations for you to, you know, to, to grow, but to the extent you identify those opportunities and, you know, we 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 help with that. You know, certainly from the capital formation standpoint, as well as kind of you know thinking through the risks and challenges of those mm-hmm. opportunities. So, but it's us. more
0: is it is it safe to say it's more about capital deployment and capital preservation and capital growth versus like, hey Paul, I'm one of your platform companies and we're like looking at this new ERP system like you're not getting involved in software selection or, you know, executive recruiting or service providers, or are you, I mean, is, does that makes sense? Is it more on the capital side? I suppose side?
1: if they ask for it, if they want to, you know, do you know any really knowledgeable consultants with, uh, you know, SAP or something like that, or, uh, you know, really good executive recruiters with experience in this space, you know, we could, you know, support that. Otherwise, If that's a project they were working on, maybe they would share that with the board and we would ask them, you know, who are you interviewing? And, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, make sure they weren't just interviewing one party, you know, that kind of thing. But pretty basic blocking and tackling. And, yeah, if they wanted to go spend a couple hundred thousand dollars on some new, you know, software upgrade, I don't know that we're going to kind of get into a deep discussion or an analysis. And, by the way, we're not beholden to any vendor. We don't say, no, sorry, we have Mm -hmm. a corporate buying deal over here, for better Mm -hmm. or worse that you've got to use this provider because, you know, we get some sort of, or we enjoy some sort of discount at the at the top of the house. Um, you know, again, these businesses are in different industries. They have different needs, different vendors, service providers, accountants, attorneys. So they've got their own, you know, group of key professionals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we like that, you know, if we, we can kind of spread the network and, you know, choose the best in class for the right situation as well. So, and, then, and there are groups, you know, that have a shared services model. It's really interesting. We just haven't, you know, gone that route necessarily because we think, you know, diverse businesses and in different industries, they just all have unique.
0: I think it's a, I think it's an important a really important distinction Paul like you said for better or for worse this is all about like what does everybody want but like right. you know I think about <laughs> like when I look at the deals that I've been on the part of or in the peripheral of or whatever it is it's like you get the capital and the deal structure and the price and terms done then it's all of the adults pissing on each other about what systems we're going to use and who had what sunk costs into what project you know what I mean so it's really you know then like People being validated that they're professionally growing in whatever position, and whether it's COO or CFO, and they chose and went through a whole, you know, systems implementation. And then I've watched people then go, "I did all that, and now the new owner is sandbagging that for whatever system that they like." Right? That's I think it's important because you know, for someone that has got a lot of pride in what they built or thinks that it's the right thing, I mean, you could really upset the apple cart, even though it's got a good management team, for a bunch of people that don't feel respected for making those choices afterwards.
1: That's a great point. And, you know, when I do get asked that question about either what are you gonna do to help me or do you have any shared services? On the one end, I think, ooh, that's a good point. Wouldn't that be nice if we could say, hey, we'll take over your insurance programs and your accounting and finance. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff anymore. Your HR, Uh, and again, each of those functional areas of a company, they all have unique, you know, issues and problems. Mm -hmm. And then I think, on the other hand, how good of a deal is that if you go in there and say, you know, employees, hi, we're the new business owner, we're great, we're supportive, we're long-term. By the way, you know, CFO that's been here for 20 years, that's awesome, that's helped grow in this business strategically. You have a new boss. Like that's not really a great endorsement of this, you know, friendly long-term approach as as well. So That can be, you know, disintermediating as well. And so, you know, we're really thinking about, you know, in terms of, you know, creating value is not really, you know, cutting costs or consolidating it at a corporate level. It's Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. hopefully, you know, creating an exciting growth opportunity for these people. You know, that's Mm -hmm. where our value creation is going to come from over time. Not through cost cutting in the next three years. Cost so. cutting,
0: or like, or like just micromanagement of like, I think because again, you and I, I don't know if it was we had hit, hit record yet, but like two huge different options. Neither right or wrong. It all depends. We're like, if someone's looking for, you know, prefer, you know, to level up their professional management systems and all this stuff, and they're looking for help implementing a new ERP system or accounting system or lean manufacturing, whatever it is, and that's what they're looking for. Some people also aren't. They're like, stay out of my sandbox because we've got this and we've been running this for 30 years. I mean, it just completely depends based on what uh-huh. people are looking for. So I think it's just helpful knowing that like, we're, you know, just again, these are questions people should be asking. I don't think it's right or wrong. It's just, that it depends on what people's expectations are and how close those are to reality. And then um, following some of these conversations is like, Let's say they've got, you know, they, they like kind of the arm's length and the support, but they've got kind of their own management team, their own strategic plan. How do you guys get into like conversations about a, like what's possible with additional capital? Because I think about like, you know, organic, you know, they're sitting at themselves they're, or they're growing from cash flow generating by operating activities or they've got their own, you know, traditional bank financing. But then, hey, we could do this outside of acquisitions. Let's say it's rolling out another project or increasing, Hmm. there's increasing their ability to scale because they can lean into working capital that's provided by you guys. Like, so how do you guys support more aggressive growth plan, organic growth plans for someone that might have that desire?
1: Yeah, I guess it depends what the investment is in order to get there is a new machinery and equipment. And again, maybe under the old ownership, maybe they were, really dead adverse, um, or just didn't want to take the two year, you know, time and investment, not only for the equipment, but then you have to update your marketing materials and educate distributors and dealers and, and, you know, change the comp plan or incentive plan for, (laughs) you know, sales folks. And that just sounds painful, even though on paper, you know, this $2 million investment in, in equipment could generate, you know, X and, you know, six million in new sales over the next couple of years. That, you know, sounds amazing, but there is a lot of, you know, work and heartache, I guess, that goes into that, you know, strategic plan. So I think, again, because, you know, one, we're not, you know, traditional private equity, but two, uh, we're not aging per se, you know, that, you know, we do have this long-term ownership perspective. So I think those, you know, kind of plans, I guess, we're we're there, maybe maybe we're just there insofar as we're not gonna say no, that we can be supportive. I don't know that we're really digging into an analysis unless there's, you know, is, is this is this a you know, project yeah. investment gonna generate a certain level of return. I think we want it to be accretive to the business and mm-hmm. you know, the enterprise or the value creation that's there sort of on paper, but if, you know, I think largely we're kind of relying on, on management and their, you know, industry knowledge that, you know, this investment is the way to, way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I guess that's an easy example as far as equipment, you talked about like working capital. I mean, we do have relationships, strong ones, I think with, uh, banking resources and we can help, you know, especially in a case where maybe there's a really strong controller, but not a super strong strategic, you know, CFO, we can help sort of model and make the case that, you know, this adjustment to our working capital facility will make a lot of sense. And for this reason, it's going to drive, you know, additional growth profitability and also, you know, help pay back the bank or, you know, improve our credit profile, you know, those kind of things. I think we've got the expertise and experience as well as the credibility to help make those cases where, where, where necessary. So.
0: Do you guys leave, do you guys leave the cash that's generated in each entity or do you swoop in and scoop out the excess cash and put it at the, at the top or uh, at the higher level of the hierarchy or?
1: I mean, largely it's left for, well, not left, but largely it's, you know, these are pass through entities for tax purposes. So it's distributed for taxes ultimately. Okay, okay. Uh, But in terms of excess, excess, you know, cash, that's kind of pulled out of the business. No, because usually if a company's growing and, profitable and generating all that excess cash you know maybe there's other opportunities that are more profitable as you said there's an opportunity cost to making a bunch of excess distributions and then investing in the market at six percent when this business is generating a 20 percent roe Mm -hmm. let's keep it in the business let's invest in you know capital projects or acquisition opportunities that's just a better use of that money and you know we're and 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 you know, from a risk standpoint, you know, we know this business. We've got great managers. We know this industry. We've got good visibility that we're going to continue growing profitably. Mm-hmm. That's just better than investing in you know a large cap stock portfolio.
0: Which <laughs> I just love is the cabin.
1: being done by some other group within yeah. <laughs> yeah. our diversified I family office. So. It's awesome. You know, we don't need more six percent return. We need a little (laughs) bit of that, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, all diversified. It's really it's just
0: so helpful, Paul. It's so helpful, Paul, because even if you got a good business with a good strategic plan and good management and you've got you know, foresight into where you want to put that money, it's available with common logic, in common sense, which I think is just fast. It's something that's important to know, because that's not the case with a lot of other potential buyers. They're either taking it out to suck out the cash. And then so you're skimping along to try and grow. So it all is about trying to align the forward looking projection, strategic plan and desires within your investment thesis. And it's just just like you said, (laughs) it's just nice to how clearly you've laid it out and where you guys stand. And again, it's so helpful then to be able to compare that to other groups where I don't care how they're structured. People need to be asking these questions. Yeah. Because- they're great
1: thoughts. You yeah, you're a terrific advocate for sure. I guess yeah, one other comment I was thinking when you were talking about fees are sucking on cash, you know, we, I'm sure there's others, but don't charge a management fee. That's a pretty typical, you know, structure as well for showing up to board meetings and providing, you know, great strategic advice. You know, we don't have any of that, you know, overhead necessarily to, to, um, cover as well, you know, for the, for the business. So hopefully we're prudently capitalized for the Mm -hmm. business. We're supporting their growth and we're not, you know, overcharging it necessarily for, you know, the gift (laughs) for the question
0: of, I I I, this one guy, he was telling me the story. He's like, my strategic advice for, and again, I'm not knocking P firms just in general, but just, just, just these are just anecdotal stories. But like, yeah, the strategic advice was every morning. My strategic advice was, Paul, what is the trailing twelve months of EBITDA, please? <laughs> you know, like that's 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 the only thing that matters. So I think it's just it's just helpful again just to hear the comparison when you have conversations, whether it's advisors, investment bankers, sellers what are some of the big misnomers that you have or questions that you have to constantly explain? Like what what are some of the biggest, whether it's misnomers or mysteries or, you know, things you have to debunk or is there anything that's kind of sticks out? About our group or our type of group? Yeah. Just like about what you're doing. Like, I mean, if someone's sitting there, I mean, like, is it, is it common to, for people to know it? Or is there, is there certain things that you have to, you know, typically explain quite a bit? I guess I have to explain, you know, why
1: spend the money on direct investing when you could just go invest in KKR stock? You know, that's kind of one thing. And I sort of explained that we do that anyway. Uh, this is yet.
0: so <laughs> another... what happens when you have enough money.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right. It's a good, good problem to have. Um, you know, the other question is kind of like generally how do you make money? They mean like, how do you realize your investment? So again, it's the explanation around the long-term you know, ownership, the capital appreciation, the diversification, which is important to us as some sort of, or maybe more important, I guess, as some sort of fantastic, you know, exit opportunity necessarily of, of the business. Um, you know, I get asked a lot about, you know, either co-investments or outside capital. And it's, you know, it's traditionally, it's it's uh, a single source of capital. So we write one check that can actually be pretty powerful to people or you know certain mm-hmm, mm-hmm. audience members, you know, depending on the type of group I might be competing against. And we're not looking for no competition. We think, you know, any business owner considering a sale should get great advice from a group like Arcana or other, you know, business advisor exploring their options um, and then make the decision that given, you know, if all things are equal in terms of say price or other, you know, structural elements, you know, really, what do I want out of the transaction? And, you know, we think oftentimes, again, for the right audience, our our message stands out. So, so, you know, that we write one check, we're not taking outside capital, you know, from other sources, you know, the one sort of partner in a deal might be some of the management team, particularly those younger shareholders who are still running the business and, you know, have the capacity to roll over some equity and are interested in that sort of thing. You know, that, that could be a, a partner, you know, potentially. And that's that's a position that's evolved for us over the years. I think 25 years ago when Encore One was first set up, it was very unique and novel. And this marketplace we're chasing four to ten million in EBITDA. It was just completely underserved, under advised, under-banked. So what we were doing then is a little more unique than what it is today. It's it's an attractive place to be and it you know breeds competition, which is affirmative. We we get that. We still think our our message stands out. So I think those are some of the common ones, you know, outside, do you have outside capital? How do you make money? Quote, unquote. And um, shoot, we just uh, want to hold
0: a, long-term, the first example, but,
1: but I give a couple of examples relating to kind of, you know, the economics around holding a business long-term compared to other options and why it works. If, you know, you've got this unique source of capital that we have, that's designed to really last in, in perpetuity, so.
0: That's awesome, Paul. Man, this has been a lot of fun. I've got uh, two final questions for you. Um, one is, where can everybody find you? I don't know if there's a specific place you uh, how to reach well, out. Proudly,
1: we now have a website. Uh, so welcome to 2002, um, <laughs> which is Encore One E N C O R E O N E dot com, and so quite a bit of our information is there, our history, background kind of the investment experience we have and what we're looking for, contact information, et cetera, is there. I'm certainly available on LinkedIn. Uh, My last name is Moffitt, M-O-F-F-A-T-T. And uh, we're continuing to work on other marketing initiatives in addition to the hand-to-hand combat of business development. We try to get our names out there, maybe not as well as as you're able to, but uh, uh, we're we're trying. So we've got some other marketing materials, overview, PowerPoint presentations, forthcoming. I hope to share that with other trusted awesome. referral sources to explain what we do and, and what's, you know, in it for the resource, the the referral source, as well as, you know, why we can be really great for, for clients potentially. So That's certainly awesome. appreciate this exposure.
0: You bet, man. And uh, my final question is, uh, I love to ask people what the word intentional means, name of the show. And I also get a lot of personal gratification of hearing all the different variations of people's definitions. So in your words, what does the word intentional mean for you?
1: I wish you would have given me a heads up on this one. (laughs) Um, Intentional, I guess to use other uh, synonyms, sort of purposeful, thoughtful, strategic, kind of uh, beginning and middle and an end in mind uh sort of a vision of what the future could be sort of aspirational vision of what the future could be dude i'll Um, tell you
0: what on the spot that's not too shabby man (laughs) i I liked it a lot that was that was very well done paul this is thank you yeah no man i thank you so much for coming back on spending the time with us and uh shedding some more light on what you do and how it works ryan i enjoyed it thanks a lot Well I hope you enjoyed that interview with Paul. You know, first of all, I wish I had that kind of wealth where I have to figure out what to do with it, where I'm going to buy companies and hold them forever because it just makes sense cuz other chunks of my portfolio are giving me the 6% return or the dividends that I want. All joking aside, I think that's it's great that there are investment firms out there like Paul's that are doing the right things for the right reason. And it's about aligning what you want as the eventual seller of your largest asset. And if it's not an internal transfer or an ESEP or other private equity firms, there are family offices out there who are doing direct investments that I think that are. it's possible if you are intentional enough to align your goals and what you want with someone like whether it's Paul's firm or whether it's any kind of family office or different flavors of private equity, or even a traditional one, it all depends on what you want. There are no right or wrong answers, but the more options and the more explanation we give on these various options, the better educated you are to drive towards the options that make sense for you. So again, if you have not checked out the intentional growth bootcamp, where we dive way into this for essentially almost an entire day, all the exit options, it's at Bethel university on the second and third of November. Go check it out at Arcona.io where we got the curriculum, we got the trailer, got a lot of stuff to hopefully give you enough information to make a decision of whether it's right for you. So again, thanks everybody for tuning in and stay tuned for next week where we're gonna be diving into M&A advisory fees and how they work and how all the different flavors of the intermediaries, business brokers and, and investment bankers, how they work and what you should expect if selling to a third party is right for you. Thanks everybody for tuning in and I'll see you next week.